Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hey, all For this week's show, I talked to Sam Bigman-Fried, founder and CEO of FTX, who, as I'm sure you're aware, spends more time in Washington, D.C. than most crypto entrepreneurs. He had some surprising things to say about crypto regulation. First, he's actually pretty sanguine about the prospect for regulatory clarity to come soon in the U.S. Second, he also said, and this was a big shocker to me, that the implosions of Three Arrows Capital and Terra haven't changed the conversation about crypto very much in Washington. Given that he's so active in talking to regulators and lawmakers, plus a huge political donor, I asked him a bit about his views on that, how much of his giving is driven by his belief in effective altruism, and how much of it is driven by his interest in helping the crypto industry grow. What I enjoyed about this part of the conversation is the nuance with which Sam spoke. We also cover some of the big line top news in crypto, the bear market, the merge, stable coins, etc. And I asked him about the vision for FTX as a centralized company in a decentralized space. Just FYI, we recorded before news broke that he'd reached out to Elon Musk expressing interest in potentially buying Twitter as part of a joint effort and before FTX had won Voyager's assets and before it was reported that FTX was considering purchasing Celsius's assets. However, I've put links to all these developments in the show notes. This was a super fun conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Now, on to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians. I started covering crypto seven years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the October 4th, 2022 episode of Unchained. With the Crypto.com app, you can buy, earn, and spend crypto in one place. Download and get $25 with the code LAURA, link in the description. Whether you're crypto curious or a C-suite decision maker, you have to check out Web3 with A16Z, the chart-topping technology podcast about the future of the next internet. Listen to Web3 with A16Z on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com Unchained. Today's guest is Sam Bankman-Fried, founder and CEO of FTX. Welcome, Sam. Thanks for having me. Right now, the crypto markets are in a major slump. The total global crypto markets are only a bit above where they were at the peak of the ICO craze in January 2018. And the day that we're recording, Bitcoin is where it was at that time, around $19,000. And this is also true for Ethereum, which basically dropped hard after its very successful merge. So I was wondering, do you think, is this the bottom or... You know, what do you think needs to happen to turn this bear market around? Yeah, totally. So, you know, the first thing is that it's going to be responsive to general macro environments. And that's the position we're in. And the big reason really is that, you know, what we're seeing driving markets is changes in interest rates, which is leading to the strengthening and weakening of fiat currencies. And so whenever you have the dollar moving, right, if, if the dollar strengthens, it's going to strengthen against Exxon, it's going to strengthen against Amazon, and it's going to strengthen against Bitcoin. And when you have it weekend, you're going to see the inverse. So because, you know, a lot of macro is being driven by moves in currencies, that's going to move the sort of, you know, crypto prices against dollars. So one sort of boring answer to the question is, well, you know, if, if, if markets go up, probably crypto will go up. If markets go down, it'll go down. But let's maybe factor that out for a second and sort of talk about, you know, relative to whatever happens to stock markets. And from that perspective, I think we've more or less stabilized. You know, we're not seeing sort of continuous outflows. We're not seeing, you know, acute pain in the same way that we were for 
you know, the week to month after sort of, you know, uh, Terra Luna and the Three Arrows incident. And and so things are in a little bit of a holding pattern. And I, I, I think the, the sort of thing that I, you know, could potentially see on the horizon that would have the biggest impact um, would be if we saw uh, basically regulatory, you know, regulatory regimes clarity, and particularly in the United States, regulatory regimes come out that sort of allowed the industry to operate um, you know, with clarity in the country while protecting consumers. That's been sort of the biggest white whale for years. And I think we might be close. Wow. Wait, for what type of legislation, like something more sweeping or, or just the stablecoins aspect or what? It's interesting. It's a lot of aspects separately, but at a similar time. And so, you know, over the last, you know, let's say six to nine months, all of a sudden, after a whole lot of dormancy, progress is starting being, you know, to be made on a lot of different fronts here. Um, and so you have Staff Now Bozeman, um, which, you know, if that bill passed, it would provide clarity for uh, non-security token spot markets. Um, you have, you know, pretending, pending actions from the SEC that might provide clarity around spot markets for security tokens. You have a stablecoin bill, which could provide, you know, a regulatory framework for stablecoins. Um, you have pending, you know, registration, including ours with the CFTC for crypto futures. And so sort of simultaneously, each different piece of this is actually in line to potentially get clarity. Okay, so I'm going to circle back to you in a little bit on policy, because I have a number of questions about that. But let's keep talking about these recent months, because obviously, it's been a historically unprecedented time in crypto. As you mentioned, it started with the Terra Luna collapse. I wanted to know, what's your takeaway from that debacle? Is it that algorithmic stablecoins will never work, or that maybe it might have if they'd gotten the Bitcoin backstop in place, or that the ecosystem wasn't decentralized enough, or Anchor had too high of a yield, or something else entirely, or all of it, or what? Right. So, I mean, there's a lot of things going on that all contributed at least a little bit to this that, you know, had impact on how much exactly there was a crash. But, you know, let's just sort of, uh, the, the way I think about it really is I divide stablecoins into kind of four different categories. On the one hand, you have fully 100% totally cleanly backed stable coins. Um, you know, this is like USDC, USDP, um, you know, tokens that are just backed one to one by the US dollar, by treasuries in a US bank account. And those, um, you know, if you're seeing a crash in those currencies, something really bad has happened um, because those should not ever have any volatility. The second category is, is if you look at things which are backed by you know, kind of like debt instruments, but like maybe not always exactly treasuries, right? Um, historically, I think Tether had been in that category, although I think it's transitioning more to the first category. When you see that, you know, I sort of think of that as being, you know, look, in, in volatile times, maybe it drops to 98 cents on the dollar, right? Like maybe there's some worry that, you know, 10% of its portfolio has just dropped 20% in, in value or something like that. So, you know, maybe it's not perfectly tied to the dollar one-to-one, but it's going to kind of wobble around that dollar. And so, you know, those first two, the first version is sort of the optimal version from many perspectives. The second version is a totally fine product. Now, it should be properly disclosed. Like, people should understand that there's a little bit of risk inherent in that. Um, but, but, but it's not like an inherently evil product or anything like that. Now you get to the third category, and these are the sort of like traditional algorithmic stable coins, things like Maker not what Maker is today, which is largely backed by USDC, um, but, but Maker when it was backed entirely by Ethereum, let's say. And, you know, that is um, only somewhat stable. Um, and, you know, what, what I mean by that basically is, well, Maker was supposed to be one-to-one to the dollar. And the thing back then was that you could redeem it out for a dollar worth of Ethereum. And it was back like, you know, $1.3 of Ethereum or something like that. And so, you know, in a big market crash, right, if Ethereum went down 50%, right, then you could see sort of in extreme cases, Maker ultimately being worth 60 cents on the dollar. Although, you know, in theory, um, you could be redeeming it along the way. Now, it, it probably only would happen in extreme circumstances, but extreme times happen. That is traditionally what algorithmic stablecoins are. And, you know, it's... Again, I don't want to sort of give like a moral judgment on the product idea because it's kind of cool, um, but it should definitely have really fucking heavy disclaimers, right? Because we're no longer talking about like 
a risk of a 2% depegging, right? We're now saying in a really extreme case, there might be a 20% depegging of, of, of it. And that's not what people are usually expecting when they see a stable coin, right? So, okay, so that, that, that's sort of like traditional stable coins. And then you get to Luna. And Luna is actually a bridge further. Um, if you look at what Luna actually is, it is, well, okay, so you start out with a bunch of Luna tokens, you know, UST, which are paid in theory one to one to the dollar. And a common misconception is that they're backed by Terra tokens, which would be sort of the maker model. They're actually not backed by Terra tokens exactly. They're backed by the ability to mint new Terra tokens, right? If you were to redeem out Luna, what would happen is the treasurers would go mint a bunch of Terra and give it to you. And this is even less stable, right? Because the problem with this is that it's not like there's sort of like a going market. Well, there was a going market price for Terra tokens, right? But that was with the old supply of Terra, right? When you redeem it, that old supply is not the new supply. All of a sudden, you're introducing new Terra. And in fact, in sort of a death spiral, right? You're hyperinflating Terra because as Terra falls, you need to mint more and more Terra tokens every time that you want to be, um, you know, redeeming Luna and people are going to be redeeming more and more Luna. And, and so that, 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 that's a death spiral. And, and that's what can happen when you're dealing with something like Terra in particular. Um, and, and in fact, that, that is exactly what happened with Terra and Luna on, on the time of crash. And so that is, again, it, it's even less stable than a traditional algorithmic stable coin is. And again, without necessarily making a moral judgment on whether such a thing ought to have a right to exist, um, I, you know, that to say that it's volatile is an understatement. That is the kind of thing that might go to zero, to actual literal zero, not just down twenty percent or something like that in a, in a crash. And and that is in fact what happened. And, and so, at the very least, such a thing should be sort of backed by a really extreme number of disclaimers, shall we say? Um, you know, and uh, and and you really have to be holding yourself to a high standard to think that like. That's the kind of thing that customers should understand. Um, so, okay, as a backdrop, Luna was always at risk of hyperinflation. And, you know, that's what happened. Um, and uh, it's not what people were expecting. So you can say, well, was the yield too high on Anchor? Like, yeah, it was. That was definitely a problem. That was not a good part of this story, right? Um, it exacerbated things. There was already a problem. There's always a potential problem there. Like that did make it worse. Like, you know, each one of these things does make it worse. Yeah. So, but do you think that type of algorithmic stablecoin could ever work? Or do you think that pretty much they're always going to end up with this downward spiral effect? Uh, it depends on could work. I mean, it, it, it was kind of a cool thing, right? It's like a cool concept, but it's super fucking risky. And I think it's always going to be super risky, right? You're not going to escape that part of it. And so I think just like, I just wouldn't even think of it as a stable coin. Like, I don't know whether it's the kind of thing that, like, like, if you wanted it to exist, you would have to exist in such a way that it was not really being branded as a stable coin. It was being branded as an algorithmic, weird kind of thing in Jigger, you know, <laughs> that was, like, not, not, not all that stable. And, like, you know, it, it should be thought of as an investment, not as a store of wealth that is, you know, kind of safe. I like that weird kind of thing in Majigar. <laughs> we'll, we'll add that to the crypto uh, dictionaries. Um, so as you mentioned, Three Arrows Capital also, you know, was a huge story these past few months. And a lot of people were shocked, of course, to find out how much the firm had borrowed. And then, you know, interestingly, after the meltdown, there were a number of people that came out of the woodwork and said they'd seen red flags with 3AC, um, but they hadn't spoken up uh, one person noted that they had seen 3AC try to sell an equity investment by wildly inflating the valuation to prospective buyers. Someone else thought, wait, this is a multi-billion dollar fund. Why are they taking on a small investor of $20 million? It doesn't seem worth the hassle for you know a firm of that size. I did also see you told New York Magazine that you now suspect the firm even tried to pledge the same piece of collateral for multiple yep. firms. So what do you think the industry could do going forward so that people either are more comfortable speaking up about red flags or just to prevent this type of, you know, insane sort of borrowing happening again? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, you know, one more thing that I'll add to this would is if you look at Voyager, which ended up, you know, it's going through bankruptcy right now, right? 
it's going through bankruptcy because of unpaid debt from three hours capital. But if you look at when it took that debt on, when three hours took that debt on, it was like three weeks before its collapse. Um, so this is not like a very long running engagement. This is like yet another thing that happened right before the end, probably not as a coincidence. These are reminiscent to some extent of some of what you saw in 2008, you know, where you basically have non-transparent systems and, uh, you know, you have people who are putting on an amount of leverage that was not well understood. Um, and, uh, you know, ultimately came back to bite them. And so I think what I would say here is like, you know, that first of all, one of the reasons that crypto wasn't hit harder through all of this, um, that, that it didn't get even worse, is that like it was, uh, you know, despite all of these problems that were introduced by, you know, three arrows, when you looked at some of the core infrastructure in this space, it was actually uniquely resilient to this, right? Like on-chain protocols don't have this sort of problem because there's transparency about the borrowing and lending. So that's one part of an answer here, which is like, you know, crypto was sort of built in some ways to solve this. And in some ways it was the parts of the ecosystem which were least crypto-like, um, which came back to bite people here. That's only a partial answer, but that, that is a piece of it. You know, having more transparency about, around borrowers and loans can be a piece of the answer here. Um, having people better understand the risks that they're taking um, when they put capital in something, you know, like a Voyager. And I think Voyager is sort of a clean example of this where more or less they did exactly what they said they do. Like the core thing here is not that they, you know, were recklessly gambling customer assets in a way no one anticipated they might even consider doing, but that, that there was quite a bit more of a risk to that, you know, semi-expected behavior than I think their customers understood. And so I think that like, you know, having disclosures, having transparency there, having more diligence on the places that, that are being lent to in this space, I think all of those would help. None of those are perfect. There should be a big distinction made between that and like E2 staking, uh, which is a really different type of, uh, of, you know, thing that one could be doing to get yield. Yeah. So at this time, it looks like BlockFi may be acquired by FTX. Um, this is going to happen at a pittance compared to its previous valuation. But now that FTX will be running a crypto lender, how do you plan to manage risk? So, uh, you know, w without explicitly commenting on, 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 you know, whether that, that, that acquisition would happen, you know, what I'll say is, you know, we're working closely with the BlockFi team on, on figuring out, like, what is an appropriate way to understand and measure and manage risk here? And I think there are a lot of things that, that you can do that help quite a bit. And I think that, like, you know, one piece of this is, you know, understanding the nature of the counterparties and others distributing the risk between many of them. A big piece of this is taking actual collateral um, and being careful about what that means, right? And, and so, like, one thing that was sort of odd that came up in this whole process um, around taking collateral is a lot of people thought that they had taken collateral from three arrows. Some of those had actually taken collateral. Others of those, although they believed that they had, um, in fact, they had um, taken the same GBTC as collateral that six other people had taken. And it was not really meaningfully their GBTC in any sense. And, uh, and so that, that's another piece of this. Having policies in place, and, and, and that's sort of like a, a sort of bland way of saying it, but being ready to actually, you know, I margin call people in in a hurry if that's what's necessary. Um, I think all of those are pieces to you know managing it in a more sustainable way. So, as you just mentioned, you uh, or I mean, we kind of veered in this direction about how um, you know you think a lot about policy. You spent a lot of time in Washington. And I wondered um, what effect you've seen these crypto collapses have on the opinion that lawmakers and regulators have of crypto or how it's affected your conversations with them. Yeah, so it's had surprisingly little impact on the conversations. And the reason for that, because that, that was not at all inevitable. The reason for that is prior to you know the, this happening, the conversations that we're having in DC were already centered around how can we bring regulatory oversight to the space? Like that was already the focus. And, you know, when that's the focus, well, what's the right response to seeing, you know, these happen? The right response is 
getting more regulatory oversight in the space. And, and so I think that to a decent extent, um, you know, as a space, we're actually already working on the important things in, in DC. And I think that's something that, you know, lawmakers are well aware of. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think the biggest response that we've get, gotten from people is, you know, roughly speaking, like, yeah, this probably just makes it, if anything, more urgent that we get some regulatory regime out um, for crypto in the United States. Um, and so I think it's added more impetus to the calls for, you know, regulatory oversight and clarity, you know, from federal regulators in a way that, you know, there had not been as much of before, um, which is all just to say that's had surprisingly little impact, just given the nature of what the conversations were going in. And earlier when you were talking about how the parts of the crypto universe that got wiped out were the ones that look the least crypto-like, meaning they're more centralized, they look more like the traditional financial institutions that went down during the GFC. Yep. Are you um, seeing that regulators understand that distinction as well or not? Or in lawmakers? I would say like some do. Like I definitely wouldn't say that none of them do. But I also think that, you know, I wouldn't say that this is like commonly understood. I think it's the kind of thing that like those who are particularly plugged into the crypto ecosystem in the policy space do. Um, and those who are less plugged in don't. So, you know, I would say a fraction, but not a trivial fraction. So you also have this proposal up with the CFTC about changing the way that derivatives are traded. Are you also talking with regulators about other hot button policy topics that the crypto community is focused on, such as the tornado cash sanctions slash privacy, or how the SEC and CFTC divide up regulating crypto or reporting requirements around self-custody, et cetera? You know, what what else are you talking about with them? Yeah, we're talking about a bunch of things. And you know, to some extent, this is when you give someone your number, you should expect to get called. And, and, and we do. And we're comfortable with that. But yeah, we're having a lot of conversations with lawmakers, you know, a lot of them are constructive. And the core of it is basically like, we want to be helpful any, any way we can here. And there are a bunch of places where lawmakers have pretty reasonable questions about how to think about the crypto ecosystem. And so, you know, we've been talking with them through all of those. And and, and, and yeah, I think it's been like super constructive. I think it's been, you know, helpful that we've been doing it. You know, I, I think that more than anything else, it really is the case that like what lawmakers really want here is like straightforward, constructive engagement. You know, they, 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 they want to, you know, make sure that they're well informed. They want to make sure they're having the important conversations, that they don't mess this up, that they sort of like make intelligent decisions. Um, and so you know, that's been sort of the core of how we've been thinking about this, which is anything in crypto that we have sort of information on, you know, we're happy to engage on with, with, with lawmakers. And amongst those topics that I listed or any others, would you say that certain of them are more prioritized by your team than others? So I think the biggest, you know, a lot of this is looking at like, what are the priorities in general, you know, in DC and for, for the industry and for consumers. And, you know, I think we think the biggest things there our um, stablecoin, you know, regulation is is a big one. Um, marketplace reg, uh, basically stablecoin regulation, marketplace regulation, and token registration. I think I think are sort of like the three big pillars of this. And so, you know, stablecoin regulation is talking with the um, law the lawmakers the most, and, and to some extent with the regulators. You know, with the markets piece, it's a combination of the regulators who might regulate them and lawmakers looking at passing legislation to enshrine that. Um, and with token registration, it's been primarily with the regulators. So as I mentioned, you have this proposal to change the way derivatives are cleared and you would like to do so using FTX's technology. And of course, this setup would eliminate the role of several existing TradFi intermediaries. I was wondering, did you um, do you have uh, an expectation of when you'll get an update on that? So, you know, we, we don't know. Um, at, you know, at the end of the day, um, this is a, um, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see when, when the regulators sort of have, have updates for us on various parts. But you know, I can say, I think we're optimistic about it. I think, you know, it's been a long, long, very thorough process. You know, we've submitted thousands of documents. It has been much more intense grilling than I think any other regulator we've seen has put people through. And, you know, the CFTC is is certainly one of the hardest, you know, and most thorough regulators um, in the financial ecosystem. They are, they're not an easy regulator, but they're a very knowledgeable one. And, 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 you know, we, we appreciate sort of what they've been doing. So, you know, optimistically, I think that like we've done a lot of what we need to do here and, and, and sort of, you know, are in the final structure of, of working through any last details with, with, you know, regulators and making sure everyone's on the same page, but we'll, we'll have to see.
Earlier this year, during a discussion at the CFTC about this proposal, I noticed that you um, mentioned that some of the other invited ex- experts were purporting to protect investors, but actually the traders knew more than they did. And what I found interesting is, you know, on the other hand, um, so, th- so that sort of kind of has this maybe sort of libertarian feel to it. On the other hand, you are a huge political donor and the vast majority of your money tends to go to Democratic candidates. And um, as I'm sure you're aware, the Democratic Party tends to be the party that is more likely to support the need to protect consumers via financial regulation. So I was wondering, like, what's your overall philosophy on financial regulation? Is it something that neatly fits into one of these categories or something totally different? Yeah, there's a lot going on there. Um, I, and, and, and there are a lot of interesting you know, tangents there. Um, in general, very few of, uh, of my policies sort of very neatly fit into buckets. And this is included. I think what I would say, the core way that I think about it is the following. I think people get distracted talking about more regulation versus less regulation. And I think that that's just not the most important axis at the end of the day. I think the most important axis here is, is the regulation fit for purpose? Is, you know, does the regulation successfully narrow in on the parts that are most important to have oversight with? Um, and, and if it does, then the more the merrier, right? Like to the extent that it's addressing really big existing concerns um, that, that, that like are, you know, potentially causing real problems if they go on addressed, then I'm all for having, um, you know, a uh, really robust system there. Um, and if it's not, if it's focusing on dumb things that don't matter, then in some sense, the less, the better, but like more meaningfully, like you got to redirect it to like be better protect. And, and the big thing here is like, is it protecting customers? Is it actually protecting customers, right? Is it focusing on the things where the biggest risk exists? And is it doing that in a way which will help mitigate that risk? And um, that, that's sort of the core of, of how I think about it. And, and I do really think that a lot of these debates just miss that, right? Like when people are debating, you know, an agency versus another agency or, you know, philosophically what the right approach is to regulating crypto, I sort of feel like a lot of those conversations are just like, come on, guys. Like, can we focus on like, you know, looking at reserves of stable coins? Like on that part, yeah, be really thorough. You know, I want regulators to be able to dive really deep into the number of dollars and or treasuries in the bank account of a stable coin issuer, right? Like sort of like as much transparency as possible, right? Like they want to enforce minute to minute transparency published in real time by the stable coin issuers with hefty fines if like, they materially misstate things and don't promptly correct it and very hefty, you know, action. If it drops below the number of tokens issued. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Like that means something wrong has happened with, with the stable coin. And like, we like, you know, the more we can do to prevent and to alert around that, the better. If you look at like having real disclosures around how, you know, a product that someone is trading works. Yeah. I think like the more transparency you can get there, the better, like, you know, totally in favor of that. And, you know, and on the other hand, I think when you, when, when you're saying like, what if we introduce three more intermediaries, I'm kind of like, okay, you could regulatorily mandate that. I agree. It would be strict in that it would make it harder to operate in this space. But like, is that protecting customers? Like, is there a way in which, like, what's the theory for how that makes the world better? than the world before then. And sometimes there's an answer, right? Sometimes you have a specific answer, like this is why these are necessary players that have to be separated out. But like, it should be motivated by that theory. It's not like all things that are awkward for operators in the industry also protect customers. Like there are things that are just bad. And similarly, there are things that are just good that like protect customers and make it easier to operate. That is like really at the core of what my belief is. You've said you want to turn FTX into a sort of financial supermarket and the potential BlockFi and Voyager, uh, well, BlockFi acquisition could help you do that. However, um, a financial supermarket sounds centralized. And I was wondering why that was the vision when in crypto, the end game is generally decentralization. It's a good question. And to that point, at the end of the day, FTX is a centralized company, like it is. And, you know, we're not trying to pretend to be a decentralized one. So we're not. Um, uh, we have, you know, a board of directors. We have like job titles. We have corporate entities. There's no like, we're, we're a company. Um, and the product we're building is, you know, it's on AWS. It, it is a centralized product, but it's in a decentralized space. 
And the way that I think about that and the way that I think about that interfacing um, is basically that, well, you know, you have um, it's sort of a hub and spokes model where, you know, a lot of things are more efficient if done in a centralized entity. I mean, one good kind of clean example of this is Netflix, right? If you want to deliver, I don't even know how many bytes a day of video content to people, um, you can't fit that all on a blockchain. Okay, that is what it is. And so, you know, the HFT firms are going to want to trade on exchanges that are probably going to require more throughput than blockchains will be easily able to handle. Okay, that is what it is. Um, but uh, but while doing that um, and, and acting, again, in a centralized company, in a centralized way, we are hooked up by decentralized rails to the rest of the ecosystem, right? And so if you want to send your assets from FTX to anywhere else, you can do it 24-7 instantly by clicking a button. And that is, you know, that's how we are a part of the crypto ecosystem. And that is something which I think is really important. Um, and and is basically what makes us, um, you know, a, a, a part of a decentralized ecosystem. Um, it's the fact that we integrate with blockchain rails and that we integrate with all the other centralized and decentralized players um, in this space that way. Uh, and, and I think that's sort of like in general, the model that like, and I feel most compelled by, which is some things will be directly on chain, directly decentralized. Other things will be centralized entities done for you know, computational reasons, you know, in a centralized way, but that then right out to blockchains that interface with them. Um, and, and, you know, that's how I see us. In a moment, we're going to talk a little bit more about the direction FTX is going and uh, some of the policy directions also the country could move. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Curious about the world of crypto and the future of the next internet? Then check out Web3 with A16Z, the chart-topping technology podcast from the minds at Andreessen Horowitz, the go-to destination for discussions on tech as it changes our world. Whether you're a crypto-curious person looking for signal versus noise in the day's headlines, or a C-suite decision-maker seeking to understand Web3 as part of your business strategy, Web3 with A16Z is the podcast for you. Tune in each week for leading insights from the top scientists and makers in the space through carefully curated conversations with acclaimed podcast host Sonal Choksi, former showrunner and longtime host of the A16Z podcast, along with frequent guest appearances and hosting by Chris Dixon. Listen to Web3 with A16Z today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Join over 10 million people using Crypto.com, the easiest place to buy, earn, and spend over 150 cryptocurrencies. Spend your crypto anywhere using the Crypto.com Visa card. Get up to 8% cash back instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust? Chainalysis is here to help. Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Gain unparalleled visibility and maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting chainalysis.com slash unchained. Back to my conversation with Sam. As I'm sure you're aware, crypto entrepreneurs in the U.S. have been making noise for years that the U.S. regulatory environment is inhospitable to them. You're one of the top U.S. business people in a generation. Um, your rise has been meteoric, <laughs> extremely fast. And yet your firms have operated out of Hong Kong, now the Bahamas. And at the same time, you're often on Capitol Hill. What would it take for you to move back to the U.S.? Yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, look, we're always going to have to have operations in a lot of countries, right? Like we serve as Japanese clients and we do that through a regulated Japanese entity. And so the, the, the boring answer to your question is, well, you know, we'll always have some U.S. operations, some non-U.S. operations. Whatever, let's put that aside and give the real answer, right? And, and, and the way that I see the real answer here is, okay, but what would it take for us to be able to offer effectively, you know, something like our full product in the United States, something that we felt good about, and to be able to do that 
in a way where um, where we were able to operate, you know, with the U.S. as not just a U.S. headquarters, but as a global headquarters, right? Um, and you know, morally speaking, like, what would it take for us to to effectively have the company basically be U.S. instead of basically be foreign? And you know, to that point, like, I think there's sort of one big thing for us. And again, it's different for different people, right? Like, when you're looking at stablecoin issuers, obviously the big thing that they're looking at is stablecoin regulation and 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 you know um uh, and bills for us the biggest thing is the markets piece right like the most important thing for us is we operate a marketplace that that's our core product it's an exchange the clearing house the matching engine um you know it's also a front end and so the biggest thing is you know well for both spot and futures uh, ideally for things that both are and are not securities um we want to be able to um I, you know, offer those from our U.S. entity to Americans. And if we can do that, um, I think that unlocks, you know, frankly, most of what's remaining here. And so, you know, that that is just the core of the answer. It's like, you know, clear, clear answers to how do we operate a futures and spot security and not security token exchange in the United States? That's the thing we've been pushing on the hardest. And, you know, that's the thing where, you know, I won't say every country has given clarity on that because they haven't. A number of countries, it's extremely unclear um, how one would do that. That being said, even in countries where it's not clear how one would offer those products, there is often an interim answer. Like there's often a sense of like, okay, you know, like there's going to be a forthcoming regime. It's not clear exactly what that regime will be. But, you know, while waiting for that, this is what you can do as a company to effectively offer the products. Um, there's not that sense in the United States. You know, we don't have that sense of like, this is how we operate for now. Um, and so that is to some extent, the big thing that's that, that I guess has been missing here is, is, you know, a sense of like, you know, either as a permanent matter or even just as a temporary matter pending, you know, further license, you know, licensure opportunities, what is the way that one operates these venues? But you know, we're doing what we can here, right? Like we have, you know, pending application with the CFTC, um, you know, or, or I guess an amendment to our existing application um, to offer, um, you know, crypto futures. You know, we're working with the SEC on new security tokens. We're you know working with Congress on getting, you know, legislation for for uh, spot market oversight. And, and I really do think a lot of progress is being made on all of these fronts. Wow. So it sounds like your, yeah, like your roadmap is, um, you're, you're kind of working on multiple areas of the roadmap all at once. Yep. That's certainly true. Okay. So it seems like if you're successful, then you're saying that you, you might just move back here. It's that, you know, that's on the, it's on the table. It's something that like, you know, we have conversations periodically about what it would mean, what it would take. And, you know, every time we have the conversations, they seem like a little bit less fanciful and a little bit more like, you know, like, you know, the pieces that would have to be in place to make that happen, many of them are coming in place. I wanted to ask you one more uh, kind of political question, which is, I'm sure you're aware that the loudest cryptos, uh, critics of crypto in Congress have tended to be Democrats, and yet that's the party that you've mostly supported with your political donations. Why do you think it is that you seem aligned politically with them, but then disagree on crypto with them? Yeah, it's a good question. The first thing I'll say is, you know, um, it's I have given to both sides. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's policy, not politics that, that I care about. And I'm totally happy to support you know, whatever side and whatever uh, people and politicians are supporting good policy. You know, that that could go either way. So that that, that anyway, that's a boring answer to your, your question. But, but I do think that's worth noting that, like, I don't see myself as like having been born with a big D on my chest or or, or something like that. Right. Like it's this is just a, a, a question of, um, you know, wanting to support good lawmakers and that that can cut across the aisle. Um, but the other thing that I would say uh, is that there are a lot of issues. I, I agree with, you know, different people on different issues. I, I think that, like, you know, one of the issues I care about the most is pandemic preparedness. Um, that's actually something which has cut across the aisle to some extent. Uh, but I, you know, I, I think that, like, you know, no one issue is going to give a really clear readout as to you know where my overall politics lies, that that's that's another piece of this. Um, and the last thing that I that I would say there is, you know, I think that crypto has been somewhat surprisingly to me a somewhat bipartisan issue. 
it's been an issue where both sides, I think, have had constructive things to say and, and where there's a, I, I think both sides are looking for ways to bring the industry onshore and to you know, provide customer oversight. Obviously, there are some differences in execution and in, in, in the exact vision that people have for it, um, which is what it is. Um, and there are certainly some people who I disagree moderately strongly with on the right way to do this. Um, but that's how politics is. You, know, you agree on some things, you, you disagree on others, you learn to live with it. And, um, you know, I think in this case, like, there are going to be places where, where I, you know, disagree with a few members of, of you know, both parties, certainly with the Democratic Party on, on crypto, but I actually agree with, with how a number of the, the members are seeing it. Um, and, um, you know, hopefully we can have a constructive debate about it. I was also curious about those political donations. You know, obviously, uh, it's kind of well known uh, that your motivation for the wealth that you've built and your career is to eventually give the vast majority of it away. You're an effective altruist and you are very interested in where each dollar will kind of have the greatest impact for the betterment of humanity. It's a very kind of rational way of looking at this. And so I was wondering when you make those political donations and you you mentioned, you know, you were looking for people who have uh, good positions on policy. Are you looking um, to support politicians with that rational lens or are you looking to support politicians who you think are um, supportive of crypto in ways that you think will be good for the industry? So the biggest thing is just looking for politicians who are in general doing, you know, good policy work. Some of this could be on crypto, but most of it is not. You know, most of um, of what I'm looking at is, you know, more generally, like, you know, how are they viewing the most important issues before us? And um, and and so I think the basic answer to your question is that it's not a crypto specific thing, and you know, it is a a much more general one. And and, and you know, it's one where I you know think that you know how they respond to, to pandemics, how they look at future technologies, how they, you know, try to have sort of rational economic policy. Um, you know, those are all sort of among the most important things um, for me. And, uh, uh, and, and yeah, I, I, I think at the end of the day, it's, you know, we, there may come a point at which there exists a single issue, which is so important that, you know, no other issues really matter. I don't think we're at that point. I think we're at a point where it is a much broader swath of things that matter and where you know I try and take a somewhat holistic view of you know how how a policymaker you know approaches uh, what policy they ultimately support and ultimately actually really fight for. You know, I have to say, it sort of reminds me of like the kind of uh, Michael Bloomberg technocratic view. Uh, is that is, uh, am I getting that right? Yeah, I, I think that's that's pretty fair. I think that like. Um, Obviously, he's had different views at different points in his life too. So, so you know, won't hold off on being too, um, you know, too dogmatic about, uh, you know, exactly where where he has been at various points. But, but yeah, I think it has a lot in common with how he has sort of often viewed these things. So, in addition to your main crypto businesses, um, and also, uh, you know, working on this proposal with the CFTC, you. Uh, in addition, have a 7.6% stake in Robinhood. You've also invested in IEX. And I was curious to hear how you thought the crypto and TradFi markets will either evolve toward or away from each other and what role FTX will play in all that. Totally. Um, you know, obviously, I don't know for sure. We'll see what happens. Um, but my guess is that they will evolve towards each other. That would definitely be my guess here. And I think, you know, the core reason is that, you know, when you look at um, at where some of the first real clear applications of blockchain are, you know, frankly, I think that some of the most compelling applications of blockchain um, are in market structure. Um, and what I mean by that is, if you look at what happened to, um, you know, mobile brokers on the day that meme stocks went wild, right? You know, what, what sort of is obvious is something bad happened, right? Like, uh, you know, somehow that didn't end the way people thought it was going to end. Um, lots of retail got basically liquidated which is actually fucking weird because they didn't have leverage on, right? Like, like somehow, despite having like unlevered positions, their positions were, you know, in some cases closed and, 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 and at the very least, they're not able to add to them. They're often just locked out of the app. Like, like what happened there, right? Why did markets break down so much? Well, at the end of the day, I think there is basically, as it turns out, a limit to the amount of money that retail is allowed to make with current market structure. And, what do I mean by that? Well, eventually, 
you know, retail bought a lot of AMC, a lot of GameStop. Eventually, they'd made, you know, $10 billion in a one-day period, mark-to-market. It takes two days to settle any equities transaction in the United States. So they're sitting there having, quote-unquote, made this money. Um, but uh, uh, but it's going to be two days until that money is actually delivered to them. And in the meantime, they're sitting there, uh, you know, with, uh, with mark-to-market gains. Well, what happens if, you know, a day and a half later, the other side comes and says, ha ha, just kidding. I don't have any AMC. I know I said I sold you some AMC. Like, interesting, you bought that joke. I never did. So I didn't have any, right? Um, what happens then? Uh, well, it's a mess is part of the answer to that question. What happens then is, well, either retail didn't actually make the money they thought they'd made there, right? Either it's all kind of an illusion because they're, you know, the trades just get canceled. Or if that's not what happened, then I guess that somehow I, someone else has got to fund that, right? Someone else has got to pay retail the uh, uh, $10 billion they think they made. So what you have is this world, world where every single broker, every intermediary separately has to be sitting there with like, you know, billions of dollars um, in uh, regulatory capital in case there's a failure to deliver. And we're just talking about the stock side here. In fact, it's even worse um, if you look at the cash side, where it takes a month, realistically speaking, uh, for cash to definitely, definitely settle. And so... Okay, so, so you're sort of like starting from that position. Well, uh, then, you know, what happens when markets get volatile? The answer is like the risk just overwhelms the system. Um, how do you fix that? You fix that with clean, clear, unambiguous settlement that's fast and cheap. And that's what blockchain does. That's like its, its core, you know, most obvious use case. And so, um, you know, one of the first things that I think blockchain may really help quite a bit is settlement, um, is financial settlement. And, uh, you know, excited to see that happen um, in, uh, uh, you know, in traditional finance. And, you know, I, I think that, like, we're going to start to see bleed over from that, if nothing else, um, you know, in the not too distant future. And, you know, outside of that, like, I think there's a lot else that that can happen here. Um, and, you know, I, I think we're just going to see this, this sort of intersection increase and increase and increase over time. Um, but, uh, uh, but yeah, I, I think we're going to see things bleeding together. And that's obviously one of the reasons that we've been, you know, doing what we can to build out our TradFi presence, because, you know, we think we have something to offer there using crypto rails. And we think it's also an area that obviously there's a lot of customer demand for. It's so funny to hear you talk about this because the way I got into covering all of this was in 2015. That was the era of blockchain, not Bitcoin. And I think one of it was my very first big article on all this. And it was about how Wall Street was going to use this technology. And then I, all these years on it, it, it felt like I was wrong. And yet here you are again talking about this as, as the future dream. Um, I wanted to ask you about an article that Bloomberg published a few weeks ago. A number of people in crypto have expressed concerns about the fact that you both own a major exchange and that you own almost all of Adam Alameda, which is one of the largest market makers. Although the article did point out there's no evidence of any preferential treatment. Obviously, this is something that a number of people in the crypto industry have observed. And I was wondering what your response is to them. Yeah. So, you know, first of all, I think it's a, a totally reasonable thing to bring up and a totally reasonable thing to have some concern over. Um, you know, at its core, like it is really important that marketplaces act in a responsible manner here and that they act in an agnostic manner. And I, I think that like there have to be controls in place. There has to be oversight of that. You know, what I'd say is we do have those controls. We do have that oversight that, you know, and we're regulated in a large number of jurisdictions. Um, this isn't news to regulators. It's not like they sort of read that and they're like, oh shit, we forgot about that. Um, you know, we, we have a lot of policies in place for this. We've, we've gone over this with a number of regulators. Um, and, you know, at its core, um, sort of in line with the statement about there's, it's all sort of mostly theoretical, there aren't sort of like specific instances. Like, um, I, you know, I, I think one of the core things we value the most is that, you know, our marketplace is totally agnostic. And what I mean by that, by agnostic here, um, is that, you know, 
we don't care who sends an order, right? I, well, sorry, they have to be KYC'd on the exchange, right? We, we, we care about that part, right? Um, but, you know, from like a match engine priority perspective, from a latency perspective, right? Like the way we think about it is like our job as an exchange is to facilitate orders hitting the exchange. And, you know, to make sure that that happens in exactly the way that, that we say that'll happen, which is say, you know, Bob has an order to send, you know, great. Bob can send the order straight to the venue. And if anyone else has, has an order, they'll send it straight to the venue, right? Everyone's going straight to the exchange here. Um, we don't have sort of preferential treatment on that. And then it's just a standard order book. You know, we've matched the best buyer against the best seller. And that, that does make it quite a bit easier that we don't have like, you know, okay, but like, you know, we try and match it against like a core market maker if we can. And then like, you know, it's like this group of people, we give them like the access, like without the extra bullshit, like, you know, as much as, as we can just clarify everything and make it just standard access, that makes it a lot cleaner to make sure that we don't have sort of, you know, conflict of interest breaches here. Um, uh, and, and then, you know, the last thing that I'll say is just that, um, is that, you know, uh, I don't actually work on, um, on Alameda anymore. I haven't for years. Um, and I, you know, I don't, I don't trade for it. Um, and I'm not involved in like day-to-day management there either. The Ethereum merge recently went off without a hitch, and um, yet obviously the price tanked, probably for other reasons. And um, you know that only uh, the merge only slightly reduced the problem with scalability. Solana obviously is a blockchain that you've been a big proponent of, and it is one that is highly scalable. How do you think the merge affects Ethereum prospects? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an amazing technical feat. Like it's super exciting that it happened, and it happened pretty cleanly, all things considered, which is also sort of impressive. And you know, really well done by the Ethereum community. Um, um, I think it helps some, right? Like, like you know, as you said, it still isn't the fastest blockchain post merge, but it's a lot faster, right? And it was kind of out of headroom before this, right? It was at a point where it just like could not support the current level of DeFi activity. Now it can, and I don't think that it has six orders of magnitude left on top of being able to sell, you know, to support current DeFi activity, right? I think it has like I don't know a quarter of an order of magnitude left, or something like that. But like it's still a big improvement, and um, and so like overall, I'm, I'm I'm super excited about it. Although you know, I, I will say sort of in line with what you're saying that like I think it it's you know this is anticipated. I don't think it changes the core narrative, which is that like you know there are advantages and you know disadvantages uh, to different blockchains. Ethereum's shtick is not that it's the fastest blockchain. It's not that it's the most um, efficient blockchain. You know, it's meant to be a high trust, high um, sort of track record uh, blockchain. Um, and, you know, now hopefully it can be in that plus a moderate throughput instead of a low throughput uh, blockchain. It also obviously, you know, gets rid of almost the entire carbon footprint of Ethereum, uh, which is quite valuable because um, Ethereum was I'm pretty, it, 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 was, it was a pretty significant carbon footprint before this, just given the level of demand, um, you know, on the network from DeFi. So ETH now is... Uh, likely going to be deflationary, and at least the issuance has been drastically reduced. And in comparison to Bitcoin, obviously, on those scores, it's improved. So I was wondering what you thought this did for Bitcoin's narrative. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, Bitcoin is is what it is, right? It's digital gold. I, I, I At this point, it's not like, it's not the blockchain um, that you would use for uh, high-speed uh, low cost payments, although you could still use, you know, lightning or layer two or a wrapper on Bitcoin to do it. Um, but it is the most trusted, the most institutional, um, and, uh, you know, uh, token that, that sort of hasn't changed. It is technically inflationary, but it's very slightly inflationary, right? Like a thing worth noting is that it is the total amount of inflation ever is capped and it's capped at like 10%, right? Like at how many Bitcoins have been mined so far? Is it like 19 million? Yes. Something I'm not sure, but something like, and there's, you know, what, 21 million, that, that So, you know, there's only 10% more inflation over the entire rest of history combined. Um, I mean, in this environment, that's about annual inflation for, for a lot of fiat currencies. So, um, you know, it, it's basically not inflationary, um, you know, on, on, on a longer time scale. Um, and, uh, um, you know, yeah, I think it's sort of, it's going to, you know, continue to play that role. And it's, it's a pretty different role than, you know, the kind of core high trust smart contract blockchain or than the like high throughput. Um, smart contract blockchain does. Um, I think the merge doesn't doesn't change that a ton. If anything, it differentiates Bitcoin a little bit more because Ethereum is not proof of work anymore. So Bitcoin is sort of the only remaining, um, you know, really, really major top coin um, that is uh, proof of work. 
Okay, so you don't feel that Ethereum's you know more reduced inflation does anything to change Bitcoin's place as digital gold? I don't think so. No. Okay. Um, so as we mentioned earlier in the show, there's you know this kind of uh, wild macro environment right now. On the day that we're recording, the British pound has dropped to a record low. There's a lot of talk about recession. And I wondered what you thought uh, might happen on a macro level for the next year and what plan you, uh, what approach you planned to take with FTX during this period. Yeah. So, you know, at its core, I mean, FTX, obviously, we're incredibly exposed to the crypto industry. It's what we are. I'm fine with that. You know, um, that it would be, you know, weird not to be given the, the business that we're in. Well, we do keep our reserves in cash. And, uh, you know, so one of the sort of dumb answers here, and again, I, I don't want to put too much, you know, in front of this answer is not really addressing the question, um, is, you know, whatever happens, happens, right? Like, um, uh, but I think the, the real answer to the question is we want to be in a position where we can offer products that people want, whatever those are, right? And so like, you know, one piece of that is, you know, obviously we've, you know, branched out into equities, um, you know, internationally, we have tokenized equities in the United States. We have, um, you know, a broker dealer and, and clearing firm and are offering equities, you know, through that to Americans. Um, uh, you know, we would love to have better FX support. We're working on that. We already have pretty good FX support in a lot of places, but that's obviously something that is going to be in demand, you know, given what you're talking about. Um, and so, you know, I think the core thing that I think about above everything else is being positioned to offer the products people are going to want given a highly volatile and uncertain macro environment. And it's recently been reported that FTX is raising funds for more deal making. So what types of acquisitions would you like to make? Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I think what I'd say without explicitly, uh, you know, I, I confirming or denying that is, um, that, you know, what are the things that would make the most sense for us as a company? Well, um, you know, one thing that would make a lot of sense, um, would be, you know, when you look at sort of the regulatory space. Right. We've done a number of acquisitions that have been aimed at companies that have um, really impressive regulatory uh, uh, sort of know-how, knowledge, standing, relationships, licensure. Um, you know, obviously, LedgerX is a big example of that. Um, now, FTX US derivatives, um, but there are a number more as well. Um, so that's one piece of this. Um, uh, you know, second piece of this, um, but, but, but frankly, that, well, has historically been a big piece. You know, I'm not sure it will be as big of a piece going forward just because We've already done a lot of the acquisitions we wanted to do, um, you know, on, on that space. Um, you know, I, I think that acquiring great teams um, is always a thing we're excited about, right? I think with Storybook for all, that was a part of the story. Um, and then the last thing, and, and, you know, maybe the biggest is looking at businesses that have, you know, really, really great user bases um, where we can potentially help, um, you know, uh, round out the product suite um, or the licensing suite for them. And so that's going to be something we're going to have our eye on both in the United States and abroad. Um, you know, there are a number of, of companies that, you know, we have been in talks with at some point um, or that we have analyzed. And, you know, I, I think a big thing from our perspective is thinking about, like, what would actually be a positive sum uh, pairing? What would be a place where, you know, we think that that sort of like, you know, would be worth more together than apart and that, um, I, you know, it sort of makes sense to, to join forces. And so... You know, we have been have been, you know, digging around at a number of those. We will always be. But, you know, this is certainly a time that we are uh, paying you know, particular attention to that. So as we've mentioned in the show, the guiding pr principle behind all the work that you do is to just make as much money as possible in order to give as much possible away, you know, so that it'll have the greatest impact in the world. However, I'm sure you're very well aware that there's a number of critics of crypto who say that they believe it's a net, you know, negative for various reasons. And I was wondering kind of what your thoughts were on that and whether you thought there was any kind of conflict in the way you were making the money and your, your ultimate goal or not. So, you know, ultimately, I would not want to be doing something I thought was like, you know, strongly destructive with, with my day job. And I don't think I am. Um, I, I think, you know, look, there are good parts of crypto. There are bad parts of crypto. That's true of everything that there are good and bad parts. Um, you know, maybe it's a little bit more true, frankly, in both directions um, because of the you know newness of the field, the dynamicness of it, you know, it means that you get a lot of really exciting new innovation. That means you get a lot of bullshit. Those come hand in hand. Um, but, um, and, you know, hopefully we can move more in one direction, you know, rather than the other. But, you know, at its core, I think that like, you know, crypto and blockchain have the potential to 
uh, you know, make settlement a lot cleaner for people both domestically and internationally. I think it is, you know, the potential to help empower a lot of people economically, um, you know, to give them real financial access. Like, you know, one of our fastest growing jurisdictions um, this year has been Ukraine um, because, you know, there's a place where people are really desperate for global financial access and, you know, we're excited to help provide that. And so, you know, I feel good about a lot of the impact that, you know, I think we're going to be able to have. Also think that, you know, a piece of this is making sure that we are trying to, you know, to the extent that we can move the, the industry in a constructive direction here, um, you know, which hopefully can simultaneously protect consumers and, you know, do some good. All right. Well, it has been such a pleasure having you, Sam. Thanks so much. Where would you like to direct people who want to learn more about you or FTX? You know, I think like I, I'm, I'm most active on Twitter, so you can always find me there at SBF underscore FTX. Uh, you know, you know, FTX.com or FTXUS to, to learn more about us. You know, yeah, I, I think that's the core answer. Perfect. Thanks for coming on Unchained. Of course. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Sam and FTX, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Matt Pilchard, Juan Ivanovich, Pamela Jumdar, Shashank, and CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening. 